FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Written more than 200 years ago, Jane Austen's novel Pride and Prejudice has been adapted in films, a wildly popular television series, and inspired horror novels, mysteries, gay, Amish, and fan fiction, YA novels, and even more movies, like Bridget Jones' Diary. The Darcy's are here. They brought Mark with them. You remember Mark? used to play in this paddling pool. He's a barrister, very well off. No, I don't remember. He's divorced, apparently. Who? Ding dong. A new novel called Unmarriageable sets the stinging social satire, memorable characters and plot in contemporary Pakistan, where marriages, as author Sonia Kamal puts it, continue to be arranged on the basis of convenience, pedigrees, and bank balances. Well, we are meeting some of the writers appearing at the upcoming Savannah Book Festival, and now Atlanta-based Sonia Kamal is among them. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. Well, thanks for being here. Pride and Prejudice was written in 1813. Now, this is when respectable English ladies didn't work, couldn't inherit property, and marriage involves strategic social engineering. Is that still true in Pakistan? Um, You know, uh, the last one very much is. Uh, Pakistani women are now highly accomplished. They're pilots, they're CEOs, they're doing so much around the world. One of the most um, famous, popular Pakistani women, which we are all aware of, I'm sure, is Malala Yousafzai, Nobel Prize winner. So as you can see, Pakistani women have come a long way from the Regency era. However, um, that very last um contingent about um, social status, um, class, that still remains pretty applicable. Right. And this book is set, it has scenes in Lahore and Karachi and Islamabad. The the Binat family live in this kind of fictional backwater town. This is set in 2000. Why 2000? 2000 and 2001. And um, as as you know, this is, um, having read it, this is a parallel retelling. Mm-hmm. So I, I very much wanted to hit all the plot points and where the originality, I hope, comes in is in the character development, etc. Et so because I go, um, I talk more about um, my Charlotte Lucas, my mm-hmm. Mr. Collins. We see a lot of the characters developed and stuff. But as well as a parallel retelling plot-wise, I also very much wanted to touch on other things Austin does. So Austin is often held up to not being, to not having incorporated the greater things going on in her world at that time, such as the Napoleonic Wars. You know, Austin had brothers who were in the Navy. Um, she, uh, she had a cousin, Eliza, who was married, married to a French aristocrat and um, he was guillotined. So she was very aware of the world around her. Um, so the reason I said it in my, uh, unmarriageable in 2000, 2001 was I wanted to give contemporary readers a taste of, um, as we all know, in 2001, a pretty big world event took place. And one of the sections in unmarriageable literally ends at August 2001. And I'm thinking a reader uh, will now expect a certain thing to happen. And, you know, it doesn't. Mm. And I wanted to sort of mirror and parallel once again that Austin did not necessarily uh, bring the larger world events into her work, but they were hinted at. They were definitely there. For instance, in Pride and Prejudice, the militia is there. Wickham, etc. They're you know, they're part of the, the army. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, I, I tried to do as much paralleling as I could. 
Well, there is a very 2,000 characters, a gay character. There's an interracial <laughs> romance, yes. premarital pregnancies, gossip magazines. Some of them actually smoke, some of the characters. Oh, yeah. But this is also a story. Pakistani of- women smoke. I mean, it's um, it's 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 still quite frowned upon per se. But you know, um, we do what we have to do, and people can keep frowning after all. You know, we're Pakistan, we're we're a modern country, and yeah, women do smoke. And the the lead character, the Elizabeth Bennet character, is called Alisba Binat, and uh, there there there's so many strains in here. You know, we get class, we get religion, we get the vestiges of colonial and the need for girls' education. And she's teaching high school, and she's endeavoring to get girls to push beyond thinking about their roles of just wife and mother. So how does she try to get them to think differently? You know, I will I will answer this question by returning to the smoking for a second. This novel, Unmarriageable, and neither do I advocate smoking in any way, shape, and form. It's just that as, we, as we've seen in a lot of popular culture, in movies, and a lot of... Um, Especially in the, you know, smoking was one of the few things which was frowned for women to do in a lot of different countries and cultures. Um, it's it's very acceptable for men to smoke. So often women would take up smoking as like, Betty Davis, for instance. You know, some of her smoking scenes are very they're they're very much part of rebellion and and being a bold woman who will do what. A man does, and and my reason for bringing smoking in uh, into unmarriageable is definitely not to advocate for it, mm-hmm. but but to ju- it's 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 still very much frowned upon in many respects in Pakistan. So it's basically to sh- to just shows a, a certain characterization, but you know so in the same. Um, Respect. Uh, my Elizabeth Bennett, Alice Bennett, teaches. She's a school teacher. She teaches English literature, and she's uh, the small town, the fictional town I created, the Lipabad. The girls over there tend to. They come from feudal families. They come from families where marriage is definitely the end all and be all, and they're encouraged to get married young. And and as we see in the novel, in the opening chapter, a lot of the girls definitely do want to get married. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is not a book. Unmarriageable is certainly not a book against marriage. Um, at all, but it is a book which questions cultures where mar- where there is an intense pressure to get married, and whether that pressure really leads to your being your your most your best self, mm. um, especially if you get married young. Um, you know, do you have you really seen enough of the world yet to know not just that you want to get married, but perhaps who you want to get married? to? Although you know, in in, in still cultures where arranged marriage marriages are the norm. Um, but, but you know, people do choose each other. I mean, we have a certain sense of arranged marriage being a forced marriage where, you know, you just have to get married. Uh, there's no single story in Pakistan. Pakistan, uh, you know, your one's Pakistan is very much determined for, uh, by the class they are born into there, as well as um, the family they belong to within that class. So you can be very rich and nevertheless have certain uh, con- constraints um, put set upon you, and, and you can be not that rich and yet be very progressive in your outlook in life. So it depends, you know, once again, no single story in Pakistan. And I tried to show as many stories as I could in Unmarriageable through the Bennett sisters, my five sisters, the students that Alice has through Charlotte Lucas, who is my Sherry Lucas mm-hmm. in the novel. So and The best ha- friend. The best friend. Yes, the best friend, a very fleshed out best friend. Yeah. Charlotte Lucas is, is, I have to say, in all of Austin's oeuvre, my favorite character. So... 
My guest is Sonia Kamal. She's author of Unmarriageable. It's a novel described as Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan, and she's among the authors who are going to be at the Savannah Book Festival in February. Well, it is actually wonderfully meta also. She's <laughs> teaching her students Pride and Prejudice. Now, she herself is a woman of 31 in a society that assumes a single woman couldn't possibly be happy, including <laughs> her students, you know. And they call her unmarriageable. She points out that she's single. What's right. the difference? There. Um, unmarriageable is is the label that society and people give you for why they think you are not getting married. And single is very much a choice you decide for yourself that you want your status to be. Right. Well, we learn a lot about Pakistan culture and history. Uh, we get the clothing and food and the expressions, uh, verbal expressions. Uh, the, the novel Film Stars and Entrepreneurs take place of the kind of English aristocracy <laughs> in the book. And instead of grand balls, we have this elaborate three-part wedding unfolding in the book. Did you feel, Sonia, that you needed to educate American readers? Oh, absolutely not. I wrote the novel I wanted to write. Um, this, is, this is a novel that I hope um, resonates with any everyone from everywhere, uh, for Pakistanis, for Americans, for for Nigerians, for everyone, everyone around the world, for for people from Norway. So no, it it definitely was not written. And I think no writer worth their salt writes for any audience in particular. They write for themselves. Um, you know, so yeah, no, this is not a book to educate anyone. If anyone gets educated about Pakistan, which which often, I mean, let's be honest, sometimes the only window uh, people have to a certain country and culture is through news headlines, and those news head news headlines obviously do not give you a three sixty degree picture of any one country or culture. I remember growing up um, when I was in Pakistan back in the day. Um, you know, a lot of times what we would see on TV would be soap operas like Bold and Beautiful and um, Baywatch. And, you know, so, so I, you know, it would be very unfair for people to think that the entirety of America is women running around on beaches and, and you know, in, in soap operas like Bold and Beautiful, everyone constantly hooking up. So, so, you know, so it's the same thing with Pakistan. You know, what we see sometimes through the news and stuff is very much just one a certain perspective. And I'm hoping that um, uh, Unmarriageable can definitely, uh, you know, offer a bigger picture of what Pakistan and Pakistani culture is because it's vibrant. It's wonderful. It's modern. It's there's a lot more going on than when we see on the news. Well, in addition to headlines, we also get uh, literature, you know, the books of places. And this is an ongoing conversation in yes. your novel about the universal language of literature, you know, of Charles Dickens and Virginia Woolf and, Flann and Flannery O'Connor, all of whom write in English. And this is tied with this complicated legacy of colonialism. Like you grow up reading those books if you go to a good, proper school. Is this something that you have wrestled with? Oh, um, absolutely. In in many respects. I mean, I grew up in what is known as the English medium system. So my education was in English and um, I uh, was a student of British, British literature. So everything I read was pretty much British literature. Um, I came very late to uh, literature of Pakistan, indigenous literature, and I'm very much dependent on translations per se, because um, English is the language I was schooled in and taught. Um, so part one of the one of my big uh, I wanted to be, able, you know, with we are a post-colonial 
country, Pakistan, as it came, became a sovereign nation in 1947. Um, that said, the legacy of colonialism no, d- d- still lingers in countries where, you know, the British Empire, any empire happens to decide that they own it. So language is one of the ways that... Um, you know, the British are still pretty much in Pakistan. But, you know, one of the questions I definitely wanted to wrestle with, and I and I say, and one of the que- uh, conversations that my uh, um, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, who mm-hmm. is named Valentine, and Valentine's Day is coming up, but, um, but you know, having the novel is how do, do we... If you are a post-colonial nation, what do you do with the vestiges of colony? You know, do you do you just uh, do you try to erase them completely? Do you try to incorporate them in your uh, in your future? What do you do with them? And um, and I hope I've been able to answer them to some in some way, shape, or form in well, the novel. And you certainly incorporated, you know, a beloved <laughs> story. Yeah, and you know, um, you brought up the books. There there is a conversation in the novel very much. With, with I've I've mentioned a lot of novels and books in the um, in Unmarriageable. Um, Toni Morrison comes up mm-hmm. in one of the Jamaica dialogues. Kincaid, Marjan Sarkrapi. Yes, um, you know a lot of Pakistani authors. Ismachuktai, um, Manto, Atia Hossein. Um, you know, so I tried to give a huge overview of a lot of different Flannery O'Connor. Um, but you know, uh, like like one of the, con- uh, the the conversations in Unmarriageable is one uh, two of the characters are trying to impress Mr. Valentine Darcy hoping that he'll marry them and um, you know they're trying to show off but he's into books and stuff and they're trying to show off or he owns the school system that I talk about in Unmarriageable and they're they're showing off about their so-called knowledge of international literature so one of them says to to, to Alice that oh yes and you assigned this book called um, uh, the, the Blackest Eye and then her sister says no it was the Bluest Eye and you know so there's a play there about um you know, post-colonialism or what what it means to be a minority culture. And, um, you know, these this The Bluest Eyes by Toni Morrison and, and the hints, a lot of the hints about the post-coloniality that I have tried to highlight in Unmarriageable definitely are come through in the novels that I've mentioned. You know, you bought up Jamaica Kincaid and um, yeah. So. It's, it's a fascinating and wonderful book. And I want to thank you, Sonia Kamal. Thank you so much for having me. She's author of Unmarriageable, one of the authors appearing at the upcoming Savannah Book Festival, February 15th through 17th. And you'll be hearing more on this series and on Second Thought. Back after a break, On Second Thought's going to continue. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Political strategist and author Goldie Taylor knows Georgia politics, warts and all. Her most recent novel, Paper Gods, is a political thriller set in Atlanta's halls of power. She stopped by On Second Thought with her picks for our Southern Reading List series of books that both define and reflect the South. I don't know what particular order I would take these in, and so maybe I will go from the first that I read to the last. My name is Goldie Taylor. And I'm the author of Paper Gods. I'm also a Southern writer. And what a joy it is to say those words together. I don't know that I had ever truly imagined being able to take on that moniker for myself. But as a Southern writer, of course, I have got a a list of other Southern writers to which I, you know have a, a soft spot for, a heart for, a soul for, and sometimes even a craving for. One of my 
favorite voices, literary voices. And it doesn't matter if he is writing narrative fiction or if he is, you know, putting on uh, a review in the New York Times. The voice of Rick Bragg is so compelling, so clear, resonates so deeply with his audiences. And I think no matter where they're from, that stories that come from Rick Bragg, in particular, my favorite was Ava's Man. He's writing the biography of his own family in book after book. The Prince of Frogtown was another. But Rick Bragg's voice, his resonance, his gift of storytelling, um, really does lend itself to a full body of work that I just hope continues to grow and grow. And so Rick Bragg is not only one of those authors that fell in love with, you know, early uh, on in my career, but that even to this day, I crave a Rick Bragg in my life. I crave his characters. I crave his plot points and his, uh, and how his stories truly come together. You know, there would be no conversation about fiction, about writing, about living and loving in the South if I didn't include Jocelyn Jackson. Gods in Alabama today, it, it's a classic read. From the very first line in the book, you know, there are gods in Alabama. It takes you from uh, that to the kicker at every, at the end of every chapter. And, <laughs> you know, Jocelyn Jackson is the sort of master of the double entendre. What kinds of gods are we talking about? Uh, certainly in the book, it, it, it turns out to be the patriarchal system and how they treat uh, sports stars and other things, uh, high school sports, college sports, that kind of thing. But Jocelyn Jackson really is talking about a number of different kinds of gods. And I think that her use of the word God in all of its many manifestations probably informed the title of my book, Paper Gods. Uh, I read Jocelyn's book you know, more than a decade ago and read it again and read it again. I think I have two copies of her book, in my, of this book in my house, uh, which is a strange thing, really indeed, that I liked it so much, I picked up a second copy. And both, by the way, are signed, and so I'm really excited about that. Jocelyn has a very unique way of coming into our lives with story in a way that really is reflective of how we live together as a people, how we connect along gender and racial lines that I have not seen a lot of that she captures us in such an authentic way that you can see parts of yourself jump off the page at you. If you're anything like me, you'll be up all night until you read it the first time and you'll read it again and again. You know, along your literary travels that you sort of discover everybody early or sort of, you know, midway through life. But, you know, I am, I'm, <laughs> I can say this out loud now with some pride, I'm 50 years old and enjoying most days of it, I must say. But I rarely think about, unfortunately, finding new things. I am thinking about how to keep life moving along from day to day, chasing grandchildren, enjoying them, I have stumbled upon, or well, was thrust upon me, Tayari Jones. Tayari Jones came out with an American marriage last year. And when I tell you that 
I picked it up because, you know, maybe there was a lot of fanfare, a lot of buzz about the book. And much like a Jocelyn Jackson, she took me from her very first words. She talks about contemporary issues in a way without having to name them. So she does all of the showing and none of the telling. And you come away with exactly what she intended. One of the major things is, you know, the mass incarceration of African-American men and boys and the way that it is illustrated in an American marriage, the way that she tests the bounds of friendship, of familial love, is something that I think I have never encountered um, in my literary life. Tayari took us on an odyssey between sort of here in Atlanta where, you know, the Rue, the family lived, you know, and then further across the South. And she, so she took us on this sort of junket across the South. And by the time she brought us back to Atlanta, by the time she and her characters land in a front yard and things erupt, you know, without giving you know, the story away, you are so enthralled, so enraptured with her voice, with her sense of place and character that you too are standing in that yard with them. You too are embroiled in, you know, the emotional upheaval. You too now have some skin in the game. And I think that's the mark of great writers in general. I think that is the mark of great storytelling, is when your reader knows that they've got skin in the game. And that's what keeps us from putting down a Jocelyn Jackson. That's what keeps us coming back to a Rick Bragg. That's what made me fall in love with Tyler Jones. And so those are my three books from Southern writers. Rick Bragg's Ava's Man, Jocelyn Jackson's Gods in Alabama, and Tayari Jones' An American Marriage. That was political strategist and author Goldie Taylor. As it happens, we've covered all of her picks on the show, and you can visit our website, gpbnews.org, to hear their stories. If you have any suggestions for our Southern reading list, let us know in our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. This weekend, second best meets second worst at the Super Bowl in Atlanta. And I'm not talking about the teams, but fans. An Emory University study released last summer found New England Patriots the number two NFL team fan base. Los Angeles Rams fans ranked number 31, second from the bottom. Emory University marketing professor Mike Lewis designed that study and the ranking and is here to talk a little bit about its economic implications. Mike, welcome. Thank you. How do you rate... A fan base. Well, fandom is um, fandom's a tricky issue because if you think about what fandom really is, it's something that um, occurs within the consumer, within the person's within the person's head. And so, you know, fandom is based on some notion of you know self identity or the community that they belong to. But to measure a fan base, you know, we've got to we've got to look at things that the fans actually do. And so, what I take a look at is uh, fan behaviors in terms of spending on a team, in terms of following uh, teams on social media. So relating kind of the psychological to the economic behaviors. 
So you've got your measures, fan equity, social equity, road equity. Let's get into some of those. And let's just listen to some Patriots fan. These are fans reacting to the win that got their team to the Super Bowl this year. It came in one story to come in and to win a game. And that's what Brady did three times in this game. We're going for six rings. Six rings, baby. Six rings. We did a huge play today. Defense came through. Defense played their part. We are going to the Super Bowl, baby. (laughs) Well, certainly enthusiastic. What makes those Patriots fans rank so highly? Well, you know, the the one word that I'm going to key on on that clip is uh, the word we. I mean, and, and so the fan is literally screaming about, we are going to have six rings. We showed up, uh, you know, our defense. And, and so y- you can see that, you know, from the process of, you know, look, this is group consumption. People are watching these games together. When the team wins, it's a group success. And so that's, you know, that, that encapsulates how fandom is really, is, is usually built. Here's some Rams fans. Amazing! We got we're one we're one step closer to the Super Bowl. I'm so excited. It was absolutely fantastic. They deserve it to win. Kind of special beating the Dallas Cowboys. 100. percent I mean, you saw that uh, 30 percent of the population was here for the Cowboys. Exactly. More than that. <laughs> maybe maybe more than 30 <laughs> percent. So another random sample there. <laughs> what do you hear? Any revelations in the difference? Well. You know, the, so that was from uh, one of the earlier rounds of the playoffs when the, the when the Rams beat the Cowboys, and you know it, it's it's tough with a small sample size of just a f- couple of folks uh, talking or screaming or not screaming, but you know maybe there's a little less passion and craziness for the Rams fandom. Um, the, it's interesting that they reference the Cowboys and how you know 30 percent of the stadium might have been Cowboys fans. The Cowboys rank very high on these lists uh, on the the fan rankings as well. So that's my question to you. Do the does the ferocity or love of the fans have any measure on team performance? You know, in in the short term, probably not. But I mean, I think it's I think it's a really interesting point in that um, and, you know, because we could abstract from being a fan to talking about consumer brands. And so if you've got consumers or voters or, or whatever that is really passionate about your product or your service in the long term, that's only going to be a a net asset to whatever the organization is. And so if you're a team and you've got hardcore support that is always going to show up, even when you're struggling, that's going to change the revenue dynamics. That's going to change the appeal of playing on the team to free agents. And so there is a, there, there's going to be a, a positive consequence, a positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you are, of course, measuring dollars. And let's look at dollars. One seller on StubHub has lower level club seats for the big game at the 50-yard line for $42,500. So how does an event and that kind of cost at the Super Bowl increase fan equity, as you call it. Well, so what what I would look at that as a measure of how much passion there is for the NFL and how much passion there is for this game. When I think of the Super Bowl, you know, I'll, I'll use the term that's almost like it's a sports and it's a marketing holiday. And so this is an event that, and I don't know if the, the seller is going to get $42,000 for the ticket. That sounds... Uh, astonishing to me. But it, it points out that, you know, people are willing to, you know, spend an annual income to be part of an event, which, you know, reflects just the intensity of fandom. 
if Patriots fans do outrank Rams fans, does that mean that the New England folks are likely to spend more money in Atlanta than the L.A. fans, you know, buying sports gear or shell out more in general? I don't know if they'll... I don't know if they'll spend more. I, I suspect what you would see if you could if you could drill into the data, maybe looking at StubHub and seeing where people are buying tickets, they're, they're probably more likely to attend. Mm-hmm. And so they're more likely to show up. They're more likely to fill hotel rooms. They're more likely to go to restaurants. And so it's going to it's gonna work that way, um, you know, more likely to travel. Right. So that's the road equity idea, mm-hmm. that yeah. they're going to spend money on the road. Social equity is another factor in your ranking. So fans who can't make it to Atlanta are, are still going to travel tweet about it. Could that social equity of that brand, like the New England Patriots, actually boost Atlanta's brand? So with with the social equity measure, you know, I'm looking at engagement beyond being in the stadium. So it's, it's a way to capture fandom more broadly than just who can who can fit in a stadium. In terms of the the Atlanta brand, you know, the Atlanta hosting the Super Bowl is an interesting event to the civ- to the city to the civic leaders because it's all about exposure, and so you know, having a team like the Patriots in there with a really intense following and more of a national following probably does increase the attention paid on played uh, paid to the game mm-hmm. whether it's TV broadcast and now in you know 2019 you know tweeting facebook instagram etc so it's a, it's an exposure play for the city here in Atlanta, though, residents can't go anywhere without seeing other brands capitalize on this moment. Local startups like Roadie have rented billboards. Bud Light Night covers at least two sides of a building downtown. So how are these brands translating football fandom into dollar signs, capitalizing on that ferocity? Well, and, and I would use the word, and I think the industry likes the word transference at this point. And so... You know, people are crazy about sports. I mean, you know, th- there's absolute passion. There, there's loyalty that I- exceeds the loyalty you're going to see in any other category. So there's there's long been a tradition of brands trying to connect themselves to the Super Bowl, to you know, uh, to the to players, to you know, to teams. I mean, and, and this, um, I mean, it's kind of you know, at least from a historical perspective, this has been going on for for decades. I think the first big one was actually Joe Namath doing a Noxema ad in um, maybe 1975 or 1976. And so it's it's an effort to, you know, fans love Joe Namath back in the day, fans love or hate Tom Brady right now, and brands want to, you know, connect to that. So you're in your industry that you study, marketing is all about taking the desire for a product or service and turning it into a sale. We can call it transference or capitalizing. How can the city of Atlanta derive the greatest financial success from this Super Bowl fever? Well, I think I think there's two things. So in the short term, you know, doing the you know having the Super Bowl is is going to be a, a boost to to the local economy, right? So you're getting folks to fly in. The hotel rooms are filled. The restaurants are full. Longer term, you know, this is an opportunity. Well, I'll say the key word is probably exposure. And so this is putting Atlanta on, um, on everyone's radar screen. So if Atlanta can execute this well, if everything works in the city, people have a good experience, that's where the positive payoff is going to come for Atlanta in the long term. Emory University marketing professor Mike Lewis, he's developed statistical models to track fandom. Thanks so much. Thank you. Just ahead, Georgia's music industry is getting political. Join us for a look at the newly created Georgia Entertainment Caucus when On Second Thought continues.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. That is Georgia's own outcast with So Fresh, So Clean from the acclaimed album Stankonia. It will be 20 years old next year. Georgia has been a major player in the music industry. Atlanta, especially, is a mecca for rap, hip-hop, and R&B. Notable artists come here to record, and the city has been home to a number of famous names, from Ray Charles to Arrested Development to T.I. to Ludacris and heavy metal band Mastodon. Now state legislators are working to make Georgia an even bigger hub for music and entertainment. Recently, Georgia Representative Erica Thomas announced plans to co-chair a newly created Entertainment Caucus. She's a Democrat from Austell and joins us in the studio. Hello, Erica. Thanks so much for having me. And also with us, Matt Still, a Grammy award-winning music producer, engineer, and mixer. And the efforts of this caucus could definitely impact his career. Welcome to you, Matt. Thank you very much. So, Representative Thomas, it is called the Georgia Entertainment Caucus, not the Music Caucus. Why is that? What other forms are covered? Well, I think that, you know, we want to make sure that it's big, it's bigger um, than just one entity. Uh, This year, we're focusing on music. And I believe next year that after we have accomplished some things in in the initiative and helped move the needle forward, then we might move on to a different part of the entertainment industry. And so that's one of the reasons why we we did that, because we want to help out every single fashion of the entertainment industry. Now, we've already seen efforts to incentivize the growth of the music industry here. Last year, the Georgia Music Investment Act took effect. Representative Thomas, what did that do? Well, you know, I would say I don't want to say anything bad about it. I want to say that it was an amazing uh, feat to get something to get anything passed in the the Georgia legislature. Trying to get 200 people on one accord is definitely Mm -hmm. a feat. Um, But I would say that it definitely moved the needle forward and it put something on the books in efforts to be able to help people in the music industry. Now, do we have a lot to change from it? Yes. And I think that hopefully that will happen this year, Um, lowering the thresholds so that it can be effective is what we're looking at right now. So maybe the question is, what did it not do that you want to do? (laughs) Well, you know, and and my friend here, Matt, he can definitely expand on it as well. But, you know, because he was definitely uh, a champion in trying to get it to where it is and and trying to get it to where it can be. Um, But, you know, the thresholds are are really, really high, you know, when it comes to looking at even different states and they have lower thresholds and you can see the actual impact. When we were in the budget hearing last week they asked, you know, simply, what is the act doing and is it having an impact? And they really simply couldn't say much um, because people aren't using it because the thresholds need to be thousands of dollars less uh, than what it is right now. I think a lot of a lot of those thresholds were based on big artists like Bon Jovi or uh, Taylor Swift, you know, and we want to impact all artists, not just the ones that are bringing millions and millions of dollars to the states, but hundreds of thousands of dollars is, is, is great as well. Matt, did you want to expand on that and this idea of the thresholds and maybe help explain that for us? Uh, I, I totally agree that the thresholds need to come down. Um, currently, they are way too high uh, for recording, for orchestral recording, for film and television. With the, the, the recent incentive, the threshold is $250,000 spend. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we, we, not only we in need order to, to qualify, in order for, to qualify for, for, the, uh, tax break. for the tax break. Um, we need to remain competitive with other markets that are out there doing similar tax incentives. We can look at Tennessee, and in Nashville, the threshold is only $50,000. And if you record outside of Nashville in Tennessee, the threshold is $25,000. So it is, 
vastly lower than what we have here in Georgia. And our tax incentive percentage is only 15%, whereas in Tennessee it is 25%. So not only do we need to lower the thresholds, we need to consider increasing the percentage as well. And I would love to see the tax incentives become transferable rather than rather than simply a, um, a rebate, which and is how they're currently set up. And, and, and I think we should match the way that the uh, film and television incentive is, because that's a transferable yes. tax credit. Well, let's so look at that. I, I see mean, no this... reason why we shouldn't match the, the, the way, because we, we've seen how well it works in that industry, and it can do the same for music. Absolutely. I mean, this has brought so much to, it's been monumental in the yes. growth of the film industry here, the, the film and television tax incentive in Georgia. Did that success inspire the move with the music industry, or was that the plan, to do uh, film intelligent first and then music? Was that ever a plan? You know, I, I don't know exactly who the forefathers were that came up with the plan. So I can't say that, you know, the, the music industry was in mind. Um, I want to say that, you know, the people that came forward and said, you know what, this is the tax incentive that I want. They they had the plan. They had the structure. And that was that. And so that was the huge reason why we wanted to make sure that the entertainment caucus was formed so that we can say, you know what, we have the structure. This is what we want to see. And this is how we move forward. So, you know, it's really just about showing people the proof in the pudding and putting a fiscal note on it and showing them that, look, we have an impact just as big as film, you know, and, and in some fashions, maybe even better. So we have to make sure that we have the structure in place because you can say complain all day and say we need this or we need that. But until you show people numbers and you show them that this is what we want to get out of it, that's when the needle is actually moved forward. Matt, can you explain the transference idea that you were just talking about to me? Uh, well, in terms of like a, a, a transferable tax credit, like when a, when a company comes in and, and shoots a film here and they spend millions of dollars, um, they don't have a tax burden that can utilize the entire uh, tax rebate. So they will sell those incentives off to a big corporation that's that's based here out of Atlanta, like a Delta, UPS, or or some other company that has a tax burden large enough that they can actually utilize that tax rebate. So they will sell those off to that company, and that the, the, the other company will use it. Um, so when you don't have, when it's just a tax rebate, uh, tax refund, you don't. If you don't have a large enough tax burden, then you can't utilize the entire tax incentive. And a lot of these companies are small; they're created just for this one project. Um, so, yeah, the, the the fact that we need to make these a transferable tax credit, I think, is is vital for its success. Right. So the bigger operations will be able to benefit from this, but not the smaller ones. Well, this would allow everyone to benefit from it. That's the goal. Yes. That's the goal. Yes. And that's the stated purpose of the Georgia Entertainment Caucus, to create a dialogue that bridges the gap between politicians, entertainment, professionals, and the community. That's your statement. Representative Thomas, how do you bring the interest of these three groups together? You know, if people don't need, people really don't know this, but the entertainment, the entertainment industry is so excited to be involved. I didn't even know it until my co-chair, Catherine Bruton, uh, put together a team of so many different people from across the gamut in the entertainment industry and they were so excited to be involved you know we can't get through a meeting that's an hour without making it three hours <laughs> and so it was it's really exciting to know that but one of the biggest things is that people in the entertainment industry want to know what's going on. It's like, how do I know what's on the table if I'm not at the table? And I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, one of the, I mean, we have a, a, a gamut of different initiatives that we want to get done. 
of course, helping out with the, uh, the, the act, but also making sure that people know what's going on in government. How can they benefit? Is it grants out there? You know, is it other incentives out there? I mean, is there legislation and policy in place that they could be using to help, you know, their industry and even um, kids that are coming up in the music industry that want to be heard or want to get their studios built and they didn't know that they can get a bond to get their studio built? Just really just making sure that we have an open um, voice for the entertainment caucus is one of the biggest things. I mean, aside from policy base, is really just getting the word out there about what's going on in government. Well, I know that when people are working on their thing, especially project based, you can get very siloed. And I'm wondering if that's true for you, Matt. You were born and raised in Georgia. You've been a musical musical professional in the state for more than 30 years. We did hear a song from Outcast Stankonia earlier, and you were an engineer on that record. So for you in the course of your career, have you seen these gaps between Georgia politics and how that operates in the entertainment industry? Um, sometimes there there is a bit of a disconnect. Um, you know, I've seen the industry go up and down through the years. Um, back in the '90s, we had LaFace Records here, and there was there were so many artists coming out of of Georgia because we had that record label here, and they were looking to their own backyard for artists. They you know they they come out with TLC with Tony Braxton, and then you also see the Organized Noise crew come out. And all of the albums that they produced, and, and artists like Arrested Development, uh, it, it became a hotbed for music, especially in R and B and rap. And you know, LaFace Records left, and there was a bit of a vacuum at that period. We still had producers like Dallas Austin, like Jermaine Dupri, uh, like Brendan O'Brien, uh, who were who were doing a lot of work out of here. But the the, the label presence had kind of left, and, and with the the new resurgence of Atlanta being kind of the entertainment hub in the South, we're we're starting to see a, a regrowth of the music industry. Um, as far as a political disconnect, sometimes I, I, I do see that uh, some politicians don't quite understand the industry. Um, there was recently, uh, within the last couple of years, a ordinance that was tried to be passed at the city level where there was a recording studio sound ordinance um, where they were trying to basically, in my mind, they were trying to shutter recording studios around the city. Um, there were a couple of studios that had some, there was some violence um, uh, around their structures, and it was blamed upon the actual recording studio itself. You know, there, the violence is, uh, we see that everywhere. It's, it's not unique to uh, one industry versus the other. Um, and when I was reading through that ordinance, I could tell that the people who constructed it really had no idea how the music industry worked, how you built a recording studio. Um, and they were making it basically... Um, so that no one would be able to open a recording studio here in Atlanta. And we or, we organized the entire community. We, we went out in force, and we objected at every step of the way, and we got it defeated. So, you know, we do have to educate the, the local politicians. And, and, and I don't, I don't want to demonize the people who put that bill forward. They were, they were trying to answer their constituents, and they were doing what they thought was right. But we had to go through, and we had to educate them. No, look, this is, this is the way the industry works. And this is this is where this bill doesn't make sense. We we all want to save community. We want we don't want violence in our communities. Nobody wants that. But you know, you're you're handcuffing us and you're making it impossible for this economy to grow. And we need to be doing things to help the help the music economy. That's Matt Stilley. He's a Grammy Award-winning music producer, engineer, and mixer here in Atlanta. Also with us, Georgia Representative Erica Thomas. She's co-chair of the new Georgia Entertainment Caucus. Well, Matt, you're speaking to something that I've heard from people, you know, in off-the-record conversations, certainly, mm -hmm. that uh, Georgia and, let's say, the city of Atlanta um, 
does not embrace hip hop and particularly trap in the same way that it does the music, I'm sorry, the movie and entertainment industry. There's a little bit of a disconnect there, a little bit of a distance. Either of you seeing that? You know, I would definitely say just the music industry, period, and the film industry. You know, mm. I don't think that it's embraced a- as much. And, you know, the funny thing is when when the whole film uh, industry came forward to get the tax incentive, you know, they didn't come with concrete numbers. They didn't say, you know what, this is how much we're going to make. This is they just put on the table saying that we're going to be effective. We're going to bring jobs, you know. And so I think that we can do the same thing with the music industry. And I think that we. I'm deserved to garner the same respect. And to uh, Matt's point earlier about um, the studios, and I think that it's so important. That's why we are trying to create the entertainment district, kind of like Music Row in Nashville, mm-hmm. where you know you go down uh, down Peachtree or wherever we we um, are going to have it, and you're able to say, you know what, I can visit these studios, you know, and with the, on the other side, people feel safe to be able to record there. You know, and so I think that that's a huge thing um, for us. And there's so much in it. And I also think that we should have a museum there as well, because we have so many Grammy award winning. I mean, I'm sitting beside a guy that can call Eldon John on the phone right now and say, hey, Erica, how are you doing? You know, we have so many people in Georgia that we need to gravitate to. And people can come from all over the country to say, you know what? I want to go. I saw a Grammy. I saw this. I saw Matt Steele and say, you know what they can take away with something just how they take away with the coca-cola um or they take away with the georgia aquarium it's just as a big a takeaway to say that i visited the music museum and i gained so much knowledge from Mm. it and we're talking about more than just production there is museums as you're talking Mm -hmm. about there's music composition performances planning and rehearsals for tours how do you bring all of that to georgia matt you've seen this stuff operate i wonder if you have any thoughts on that well, I, I, I love the idea of an entertainment district. And, you know, we, we not only have to have recording studios in the area, we have to try to attract record labels. We need to try to attract, attract performance rights organizations, publishing companies, mm-hmm. uh, management companies. Um, you know, unfortunately, we just there's a performance rights organization, CSAC, which just recently within the, in the last couple of years closed their Atlanta office and moved it up to Nashville. Mm. Uh, we had a strong Atlanta presence. It was a great office. They were doing amazing things, but the economics of it, they they moved it up to Nashville. Now, Atlanta is still covered by CSAC, but we, there is no physical presence of CSAC here mm-hmm. in, in Atlanta. And we, we need to change that. We need to get the performance rights organizations here. We need to get record labels here. We need to get publishing companies here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that type of entertainment district, I think, will be, be a huge, huge step in the right direction. Um, and, and, and not only working on, you know, the, the state level, but the city level, reach out to reach out to the local politicians. We should be able to hear music everywhere around the, the, the state and mm-hmm. around the city and, and not just at the big mega artists, the Elton John, the Taylor Swift, the Beyonce level, you know, but everything from the from the emerging artists and, and every level in between. You know, you know, I go to New York City and I see, you know, musicians in the subway. I don't see that here in, in Atlanta. I mean, once in a while, they'll do a special thing where you'll see some musicians in a couple of stations. And I think the last time I or saw it was airport. 2017 or the airport. Yeah. You know, the, the, the ordinances make it prohibitive for artists to go around and, and, and busk. It's called busking, you know, going out and, and playing in mm-hmm. public like that. And, you know, there are certain things that I think they should they should loosen up on those so that wherever you go in the city, you can hear music and it becomes a part of the fabric of our society. And I think that it, it is very important. You know, 
Well, we have to wrap, but I'm just warning Representative Thomas, of course, you have to make this kind of case to your fellow legislators and say, you know, so we're missing a little of the tax base now, but this is the payoff. How do you make that case for balancing those long-term goals with the tangible efforts to get there? Well, we just have to pray. (laughs) No, well, you know, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, people are seeing it. They're seeing it every day. And I think the biggest part when you bring in the entertainment caucus, you know, they can speak to it um, better than any legislator can. And we also have people on the uh, entertainment caucus like Representative Beth Moore, who is an entertainment lawyer. And we have so many more. And so I think the biggest thing is really just proving it, showing it and just showing up. I think that's the biggest thing. I think that's what the film industry did. They showed up, they organized. And when you have people all around that are saying, you know what, we're going to show up at those that that committee meeting and we're going to say the people, tell the people what is going on. And that's really what it's about It's the power is in the people. It's not in the represent the representatives or the centers. It's in the people showing up and saying, this is what we want. And I think we have that now that we have the entertainment caucus. All right. Lighten the fire there. Georgia Representative Erica Thomas, thank you so much for speaking thank with us. You. She's co-chair of the new Georgia Entertainment Caucus. And Matt, still thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. He's a Grammy Award-winning music producer, engineer, and mixer, and totally behind this, as you can hear. We're going to leave you with another song from an album in Matt Still's credits. This is Elton John's Answer in the Sky on 2004's Peachtree Road. And that's our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Elena Rivera, Leighton Rowell, The Raven Taylor, and Amelia Brock. Alec Kaslow is our engineer and Amy Kiley, our senior producer. Back with more tomorrow. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought. There's a